0: Art was something I studied at GCSE and A level and it was a real passion project. I'm dyslexic and I think naturally that means you kind of think a tiny bit differently anyway and it's one of the aspects of why I love running a business is because I think creativity isn't just like art and being good at drawing it's actually even just like the way you think.
1: Trials, tribulations, mistakes, barriers, successes, and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion-dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well-managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators and intrinsic motivators. This is Success Is in the Mind. Pip Murray, Peanut Butter, Need I Say More. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last year, you will have seen the Pippa Nut branding everywhere. At least I have. From tubes to London buses, Instagram to Facebook, there's no getting away from the fact that Pippinut are scaling and scaling hard. From training for the London Marathon in 2013 and making her own peanut butter to winning a competition that allowed Pip to escape the city and focus on her business vision, Pip Murray now runs a peanut butter empire. With cookbooks to merchandise, tubs to jars, I asked Pip Murray how she generated £3 million worth of investment. How do you build a consumer brand? How do you overcome imposter syndrome? And does being the face of the business really help with authenticity? Ladies and gentlemen, Pip Murray.
0: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Before we
1: get into it, Pip. You've got a Cavapoo. I've got a Cavapoo. I got mine during the pandemic. How old's your Cavapoo? Charlie, I think it's called.
0: He's, he's called Charlie. And he is a pre-pandemic pup. So he's about four years old. Half the price as well. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? It was such a kind of um, blessing having a dog during lockdown, I've got to say.
1: It's amazing. Amazing. When, when did you got it? Four years ago, you say. So how old is he now? You've got him as a pup.
0: Yeah. So yeah, he's, just, he's almost four. Um, so he's out of like the early puppy phase where they are total, like they're amazing, but you can just... You know, you know what it's like. They just yeah chaos.
1: They're quite easy to train, though. I was amazed. I was amazed how easy he was, or my one is, to train. Anyway, really called Darcy. She yeah, was pretty good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Charlie's a bit of a pest, but he's in the office every day, so I'm in the nest today, and yeah, he's lurking around. So you might hear him bark at this door. I'm in a, a little meeting room, and he might bark at the door, wanting to come in. Oh, so that's very sweet. Just bear with me if he starts doing that, because he is quite petulant.
1: <laughs> we can. We we could bring Charlie in, but going back to pre-pandemic and indeed pre-CavaPoo, you went to <laughs> University of Central London, UCL, and you graduated in 2010. You then ended up working uh, at the Science Museum for a couple of years, but that was in 2012. What did you do between 2010 and 2012 then,
0: Pip? So I guess at that time, I was sort of early stages in sort of figuring out what I wanted to do and... I'm definitely one of those people that didn't really have a clear plan in mind. I didn't, I've never during school or university like knew 100% what I wanted to do. So during that time, I mainly, I did a lot of internships and kind of, you know, the creative arts sector, which is where I was sort of wanting to focus and get into is notorious for having to work for free for quite a long time to try and get (laughs) your leg in the door. So I worked at kind of art centers in East London before landing my sort of more permanent role at, at the science museum. So yeah, it was a bit of a kind of hodgepodge of random jobs from, yeah, internships to call centres, you know, you name wow. it, I probably did it.
1: <laughs> so, why the Science Museum then? Why was that where you ended up?
0: I mean, so I, I studied anthropology and geography at university. Um, anthropology yeah. has always been something that has, I, I love it. It's such a fascinating subject. Um, and, you know, anthropology is all about the study of sort of material culture. And, you know, Ultimately, museums are one of the best kind of archives of of stuff, I guess, and it really kind of put, kind of piqued my interest, I guess, as a as an organisation to work for. You know, they have some of the most amazing objects in their stores, Um, and I. But at the same time, I was quite interested in sort of the creative arts sector, in particular, kind of theatre and production, and there happened to be an initial role as a kind of personal assistant to the external affairs um, director. Um, that I was sort of interested in, but eventually managed to get my foot into doing sort of theatre production. They had a big IMAX theatre, which they also had like a stage which they could do various different productions on. And so I okay. got involved with sort of doing a number of kind of big theatre kind of um, events and and shows that they ran, um, particularly during school holidays and things like that. So it was, yeah, like a bit, I guess when I left university, I probably wouldn't have imagined myself initially there. But as I kind of started to kind of pick my way through where would I like to kind of make my first step if this opportunity came up and the Science Museum makes sense. But, yeah, massive respect for kind of the creative sector and particularly museums and arts because it is, you know, they're incredibly talented at what they do, but they are, it is a hard industry in terms of budgets and, you know, uh, pressure on the arts in general. So, um, yeah, they are... You know the lifeblood of cities, and um, you know keepers of our culture as well.
1: A hundred percent. And when you were back at school, then, if we can dial back the clock ever so slightly to, to to your upbringing, then were you very much a kind of creative child? Because they allude to the fact that geography, with the greatest of respect, is glorified colouring in at, at GCSE <laughs> level. I don't know about degree level, but uh, were you a creative, a creative kid?
0: Yeah, definitely. Art was something I studied at sort of GCSE and A level, and it was a real passion project. And I think. You know, it was always something that I wanted to see how I could weave that into my kind of career. But um, I think kind of the practical side of me probably was I want something a bit more applied than that. But yeah, I think I've always had that kind of um, creative to my mind. I'm dyslexic and I think naturally that means you kind of think a tiny bit differently anyway. And often when you are a dyslexic, you're quite a visual learner. You learn things by like seeing and drawing and like pictures. And so whilst a lot of my academic career or kind of studies have not always been necessarily translating into like visual um, art and things like that, a lot of the way that I learn is quite creative and visual and tactile. Um, So I think naturally it is something that is in me and it's one of the aspects of why I love running a business is because like it really, because I think creativity isn't just like art and being you know good at drawing it's actually even just like the way you think and the way you approach problems yes
1: and i, and I we're going to you know a couple of questions later on about how you built the brand and how you've come up with such a, a sort of valuable brand i suppose because visually it is excellent i suppose that harps back somewhat to your love of art and and creativity did you do a lot of pippa nuts branding then in the early days yourself
0: so in the early days I worked with or when when I was setting up the business I worked with an amazing agency called B&B Studio and they, they are absolute specialists in packaging and design and I'd say I wouldn't say that I was I didn't draw the design of the logo but I worked with partners that could help get whatever was sort of the feeling that I was trying to get in the brand and I think feelings are really important like what is it you want it to feel like um, they managed to create that into something that like looked and felt like what I was trying to get to so when we were the whole brief, um, and when I was sort of briefing them into what Pippinat was going to stand for, like, I it all centered around this concept of positive energy and this and and this sense of like the product itself is very positive. It's like nutritionally rich. It's tasty. It's like what you put into it, not what you take away. But equally, our approach to food is quite positive. Like we're not preachy. We're very. We're definitely not functional in the way that we talk about food. It's all about trying to make it accessible. And I think more positive optimism is often the way to kind of tempt people into more healthier lifestyles. And I think that's what really, when you come and look at the brand, like that's the feeling we want it to exude. So, but then equally, I think the the relationship between a creative agency and founder or marketing director or your marketing team is such a collaborative one. Ultimately, they are the ones that will be drawing it and physically building your, the, 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 you know, identity or packaging or whatever it is you're working on. But you're also giving, having to give direction and feedback and, and trying to get them to get what it is that you're feeling into something tangible. So I think there is this like really symbiotic, symbiotic kind of relationship that you have with designers who ultimately have to do the hard work of actually physically making it a drawing and a, a, an illustration or whatever it is, but yes. you have to be there to kind of direct and shape. And I think that sometimes can be certainly a skill that you have to learn is how to how to how to work with agencies and how to make sure that you articulate what it is that you're looking for without telling creative people what to do
1: and how do you go about doing that because similarly I'm both dyslexic and dyspraxic but also when I have an idea I find it incredibly difficult to articulate it clearly to individuals to come up with the visual aspect of it but in my head it's very very clear so how can you or how do you communicate that to other people
0: yeah I think um I think it's always important to step back and with any project really think about what is it that you're trying to communicate and it sounds really obvious but sometimes you can go a bit too quickly into the actual specifics on it but really think about what is it that you're trying what problem are you trying to solve through whatever design that you're you're creating could be a comms challenge so for us like you know we're always thinking about how can we communicate with our packaging that we need it to be natural and tasty and um, communicate health alongside also being you know fun and playful brand and there's this constant tension so I think it's it's making sure you're really clear when you're briefing an agency what is it that you're trying to achieve and communicate without necessarily being like specific like with colors or pantones and textures and and I think that kind of helps and then I think I think having a good agency if ultimately you have to have a good relationship with them and find the right creatives that understand you and i think as somebody that's quite a people person i think you can intuitively often kind of get a feeling when you meet someone that they like you, you get each other and maybe that's just because the way you talk and communicate is kind of similar um so even if you are a bit garbled in the way that you talk they kind of get it and they get <laughs> the, the vibe Between the
1: lines. Yes. um
0: so i think like ultimately make sure before you even start on a brief like if you haven't worked for the creative agency before make sure you met them and and they understand and have a sim, a portfolio that that you feel is is something that you 're looking for in your brand or business, so I think that helps and once you have cemented that relationship, I think then it's a lot easier because actually there is just um yeah commonalities I guess in the way that you might work together
1: <laughs> yeah it's so interesting how people can because it 's such a subjective medium, both branding and also yeah. working in in the creative worlds and we'll come on to that episode slightly later, but looking again, pip at how you how you kind of came up with the vision and the idea of, of Pip and Nut? Similarly, you will have had to take a step back and gone, okay, where do I want it to go? How do I want it to get there? And fundamentally, I'm assuming, what do we want this brand to be? But it all kind of stemmed from when you were running marathons. You wanted something healthy. You wanted something that was full of protein. Talk to me about how you came up with the idea.
0: Yeah, I think I very much came at it from a consumer lens. So I, like you mentioned earlier, didn't work in food and drink at all. So I had no kind of, I didn't really, un- really understand, understand what a brand was I think it's something that's quite intangible in loads of ways and only now having worked in this industry you kind of get it but um yeah I think I came at it from a a problem that I saw which is that this particular space in the supermarket kind of the peanut butter hours was a product that I ate and bought a lot I was running like you say lots of marathons and the great thing about peanut butter and nut butter is that it's high in protein rich in good fats it doesn't peak and trough your sugar levels so it's a great fuel for sport and that's often why a lot of people do eat it um so that was something that i loved and i loved like the addictive nature of the product like, mm-hmm. it is quite like irresistible More-ish. um yeah, 100%. and so but a lot of brands that i saw had palm oil in it a lot of them um were very highly processed and i remember seeing across other areas in store like some really cool brands popping up really independent and like natural and health-led and I felt like this space was really lacking and so it was I guess a, a small gap that I saw in what was quite an established space in supermarkets so I wasn't really re- wasn't kind of creating a whole new category I was sort of just reinventing something that already existed and oh, you better, yeah. yeah I guess for me it was about creating a brand that had real like emotion and feeling behind it and fun and that had a character around it which I think we really do have in our brand.
1: You were quite ballsy and put your name on the front cover of what was either going to go well or I'm <laughs> going to go badly. You know, why Why put your name on it?
0: Why put my name on it? That? That's such a good question. I think I'm very lucky that my name happens to also sound like something that isn't a name, you know, or, you know, a lot of people don't realise the Pip and the Pip and Nut is a person. <laughs> yes. And so it's not like Dave's Dave and Nut or... <laughs> you know because you know I, mean?
1: right? I, I assumed straight away that pip was obviously it yourself is. but i didn't think it was pippers in a pip like a, an apple pip really. yeah
0: yeah i think it's a mixed bag and so it just it felt really right as a name and yeah. it's surprising actually these things like I, it was the only name i really came up with that i thought would work for the brand and it just had that nice <laughs> balance in the. so um perhaps i'm actually not that uh creative in fact i'm just quite like see what's <laughs> says what you know put put your name on the jar sort of thing like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's probably the easiest branding job you could imagine but I did always really like the fact that um I think what can what people like and what I like in brands is that feeling that you're buying into something that is independent and is made by somebody that cares and I think there's something quite powerful about someone that does put their name on something um however what I have had to get over over the last few years is I've often shied away from being in front of the brand like I'm not a big like influencer kind of person that loves to you know talk to my phone and stuff and when you put your name in on your brand like ultimately you are front and center even if you perhaps aren't that sort of personality so it's a funny one because it is a powerful thing to use and brand build around but equally you've got to kind of be ready to kind of also face up face into the brand and and be that face because it's You know, it's kind of part of your DNA. Ultimately, it's in your name,
1: and it adds a level of authenticity, I suppose, Mm. to to the brand. But it's interesting; it's almost as if you'd seen the script before we'd actually got into the conversation. Because my next question, Pip, was: you speak very publicly about about imposter syndrome and how to deal with that. And actually, you know, the the irony is, you have put your name on 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 this brand. You've got one hundred and ten thousand followers on Instagram, but yet you feel you have or you had imposter syndrome. How did you How did you deal with that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's imposter syndrome, such a tricky thing to get over isn't it because I think it I'm not sure if it's something you fully ever deal with I think it's always there as a niggling feeling and I think perhaps it's part of like who I am in the sense that I always feel that I've got more to learn and more to know and there's probably someone doing something much better than me so it's a kind of you kind of it's more about controlling that little voice in your head as opposed to necessarily eradicating it I think it always sticks with you but I think for me it was about um recognizing I think as we grew, like how far we've come and that success is not solely down to me because it's my team, but it has come from me in some form or another. And like you said, like the proof is in the pudding. Like you can see that, that the brand has is successful and that there are lots of people that love it and that you've just got to kind of remind yourself constantly that that is success in its own right. I think the other part of it is about kind of, I think often with Poston syndrome for me comes out when particularly like a leadership role or you know, I run this business, I'm um, the CEO. So having never done something like this before, it's, it's quite intimidating. You don't always yes. know exactly the answers. But I think sometimes knowing that your strength is sometimes because you haven't done it is a really powerful thing. There's no one way of being um, a, an inspiring leader. You can be a quiet founder or you can be a very, you know, outward and kind of, um, what's the word, extrovert. Like you yes. can be both. Um, yes. You can be successful and, and run a business and have be one or the other. So, um, yeah, I think it's just remind yourself that you don't have to fit this sort of mould. And that's sometimes I think part of, part of just kind of meeting lots of people and speaking to lots of people and then seeing that actually like there isn't just like a Richard Branson as a role model to be an entrepreneur. There are lots and lots of people that are incredibly talented, but very different from that.
1: and Richard Branson is the one people always allude to but you're absolutely right there are there are tons of different individuals out there and and going back people clearly believe in you from the early days because you won a competition to essentially take yourself out of the city and bung yourself in a shed for for three months to kind of focus and come up on uh, you know with regards to your idea a little bit more and develop it and then you went through and you had a 10,000 pound startup loan and then you went through and you had a crowdfund which you overfunded and I think you got 120,000 quid so you know there's three really impressive things all in the space of basically a year that you managed to do to get Pippa Nut off the ground. How did you know that was the right way to go about it?
0: Yeah so I guess context I was I was um, sort of 24, 25 when I start, was starting out the business and um, some of it wasn't necessary about knowing, it was just kind of necessary. So um, that competition you mentioned, it was yeah. called Escape to the Shed and it was to win three months rent free in what was a garden shed effectively. And so it was a startup <laughs> competition. I threw my hat in the ring and it's that funny thing about luck, isn't it? Where, you you know, the, the saying of like, you make your own luck, i you only can <laughs> potentially um, you know, progress and move forwards if you actually just do put your neck out there sometimes. So that was a random competition that I entered and happened to win and like, likewise, um, you know, applying for that startup loan and, you know, being approved for the loan and, and, and finally also, you know, doing that crowd fund, you know, but I think what's key is that you take things step by step and take the crowd fund, which was on CrowdCube. It was like an equity crowdfunding campaign, um, you know, if I'd done that in on day one, I wouldn't have succeeded, but I actually had, you know, a year and a half prior to that of creating the packaging, creating the recipes, proving the concept at markets, uh, finding a manufacturer, developing all the aspects of the business and forecasting and, and business plan. So I think it's like the most important thing when you're starting something up is, is to try it as much as you can, is to, to accept where you are and take it step by step and You know, not to rush into it, and likewise with funding, like get the right amount at the right level, and don't you know try and accelerate things or overvalue your business, or you know recognize where you're at and and take it take your time with it. But yeah, I mean, always is a funny one when you look back at that startup phase it's the most painful slow process it took about two years from start to finish yeah but when other people look at it they think you've done it overnight and that's always the thing as well is like just you know it does take longer than you think it's going to do um but I think for me I was always I'm I think most people that start a business are relatively risk averse (laughs) but even so like you're still making calculated risks so I never quit my job until Um, I knew that the business I had a factory and I could make the products um, like at scale in a commercially viable way to sell in supermarkets. I never would have quit my job ahead of like knowing that I had a feasible, tangible, real business that could actually get out in the market. And I think, you know, those are sort of like it's still nerve wracking quitting your job because you haven't necessarily sold. Um, anything, but you know that at least you've tested it a little bit. Because I was I was actually
1: going to allude, Pip, to the fact that you did maintain, I suppose, employment with, with, with the Science Museum whilst you were starting the business up. And, and actually looking at the first two years from 2013 through to 2015, it really started to take off from 2015. And that's kind of what I've realised was actually, I'm assuming, the point that you realised it was a proper, sustainable business, because you got into Selfridges at that point.
0: Exactly that. So when we launched into Selfridges, kind of when I say the business started, because that's when I had you know the brand as you see it today was developed and it was the first time that like you know i had investment and we were really you know i had one employee at that point and hey. it was it was the move <laughs> exactly it's like suddenly it's not just you sitting yeah. in a room so it feels more real share the pain <laughs> that's exactly it
1: yes. and, but how did you get into selfishes if it was your first ever client people normally aspire to get into into harvey nixon and Selfishes and places like that but actually as your first client it's pretty impressive
0: yeah they were they were great and i would say like in those iconic we call them iconic stores, so like Selfridges, Harvey Nicks, Fortnum Masons, Whole Foods, Planet Organics, they are actually really good at supporting and spotting trends, and I think, or products that are on trend, and I think they are always willing to kind of work with you when you're even pre kind of launch to kind of seed and help support. So they're a lot more open and, and able to kind of, uh, and, and kind of keen to get approached by brands that are kind of up and coming and particularly cool hip products that are on trend to work, but that particular uh, buyer actually came by Maltby street one time. So it was a complete coincidence that like, they just happened to be there. And I guess this is kind of a bit like what I mentioned earlier, like you make your own luck, like yes. you don't meet someone coincidentally because I was at the market store that day and, and they were happened to walk by and, and, and were interested and said, reach out, you know, when you're ready. And so yeah, it was it was amazing, and um, Salvages was I don't know it's such a pinch me moment when you see it on the shelves. It's wicked.
1: You had the CEO of Vita join you guys, and that's you know that's a big deal. They've got a big brand. You know how did that feel when they essentially bought in and sat on your board? Did you feel like they were going to advise you, or did you have to sort of tell them what you would do because they were a shareholder and not an advisor?
0: Yeah, so I think for me, I I knew I had a great product, and knew I had a great brand, um, and. I felt really strong in that um, but what I was definitely lacking was like commercial know-how and completely clueless when it came to supermarkets and <laughs> he was someone that I knew had real credibility in this space to be able to support and, and provide that coaching that I needed so what I think is great about an advisor or mentor at that early stage is that because he'd been there done there done it like and he'd scaled by to cocoa in the UK and abroad in Europe like he knew how scrappy a startup is in the first few years. He knew all the skeletons that were probably going to appear. So I never felt ever, like, ashamed or afraid to kind of come to him with a problem. And he was always very open to kind of like, okay, yeah, I've seen this before, (laughs) no worries. So I think it's really key that you find that person that, like, is willing to kind of support you, even when you're, like, probably... Uh, a bit clueless at times <laughs>
1: and the skeletons and the mistakes and the issues that you had in said closet you know that you went to giles with can you remember those
0: gosh it would be things like um i remember the first couple of years like really having to get to groups with how to forecast and how to manage a budget and it, it sounds really basic but actually it's really easy when you're starting up and you've not had any kind of business training is to sell low or think you're on track to hit your numbers. And get halfway through the year having spent all your marketing budget and then realize that some <laughs> of the sales aren't going to come through and that's the sort of thing where you like you feel really stupid it also leaves you with a massive cash gap and you can find yourself in a bit of a sticky situation um i remember another situation where we won the sainsbury's listing and i remember celebrating it was this amazing moment first mass national retailer we won four products in 400 stores it was like absolute game wow. changer in our first wow. year and got the call from the buyer cracked the champagne open and then the next day kind of started to kind of figure out how I was going to you know what, yeah, you what I need to do next ads. and then yeah, yeah and I, re- I realized that like you you have to order like normally four cases of product per store um so for each line that they take it took and we were at the time sort of buying things to so we were, we were being charged by a man if we didn't have any terms with them so they were charging us Um, for the full you know as they produced, we'd have to pay up so we were stuck in this horrible um, cash flow cycle where Sainsbury's wouldn't pay us for 60 days but our factory expects us to pay for the goods up front and I remember we almost didn't make that full order I almost couldn't afford to buy it or (laughs) almost couldn't afford to launch into Sainsbury's and having to give Giles that call Um, and sort of that moment where I you know asked for a bit of a a favor (laughs) and um yeah, I'm feeling really like sheepish about it and stupid and did you, as well. And so. did you
1: have to ask Giles for, for money or did you manage yeah, to get Yeah, he, he
0: supported in those early days with um, with a loan just to help us bridge a really tight cash flow gap. So he massively supported and helped and stepped up. But also really importantly, I think, is like he understood kind of, you know, where that these things happen and was empathetic to it, but certainly probably told me never to lose sight of cash flow again.
1: In terms of when you sort of started to become a proper business and you said on your blog online that in 2017 you actually felt like you were properly growing up and every single year I look back and I go, we're like a proper business now. I always say this every year and you always grow up but you know where you guys are now in 2019 you had a valuation of I think it was about 9 million quid. You're now, you know, way, way, way beyond that. Where can this business go over the next sort of three to five years?
0: Yeah, so for us, um, I guess... We're a nut butter, nuts brand, so really anything with that in it, we could diversify into from a product perspective, which does give open open the doors to lots of different stuff. If you wander around a supermarket, you'll start to notice just how many products have peanut butter in it. <laughs> um, so there are lots of different ideas on the table about how we could expand from a product perspective, not just within our core category, which is obviously our nut butter. Um, and there is also international as well we're very much a UK focused and Ireland um, brand so we haven't really stepped too far beyond that so exploring are there other opportunities but I think for me fundamentally um, and what is my current and and real burning kind of what's keeping me going and and focus is about really how we use our business as as a force for good, we became a B Corp a couple of years ago.
1: I noticed that. That's excellent. Was that strategically sort of your, your vision, your pushing, or was that your team and the board around you?
0: Definitely. Definitely was a passion point of mine. Mm. And I think I just, just believe it's the right thing for a business to really think about not just driving bottom line profit, but how do you do you how do you build a business in the right way? Thinking about both the people in your team, the wider communities around you, but also the environment as well. Mm. And I think it'd always been kind of part of how we approached things at like Pippin up, but but that B Corp certification was a a real, um, I guess a real. It allowed us to like really focus and and really push um, on across a lot of different areas. But I think over the next three to five years, for me, it's about. I mean, we're in, in the midst of COP 26 at the moment as yeah. we're recording it, and I think there's never been a time where business has had and needs to step up. And mm-hmm. for me, creating a business that has sustainability, um, at the heart of everything that we do is, is an absolute focus. We're a product that is made of natural ingredients that are grown in the ground and on trees. And for me, it's about how do we make sure that for the long term, not just now we are, you know, a great brand. And that for me is about ensuring that we are as light on the planet as we possibly can be. So yeah, that's our current, like big focus is like really embedding that through every aspect of our business. Um. Because I think ultimately those businesses that make those changes now are the ones that will survive mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the long term. Um, and what consumers might not be buying it immediately now because of the, the good things that you do. I think it's becoming more and more important because it is more and more important globally um, that people are responsible in the way that they act.
1: And we're, we're going through our B Corp certification, but we're in Are the you? service sector industry, but professional B2B services so slightly different, but still equally as important because we know the impact that having a business for good can, can achieve on the world or can do for the world. But again, looking at part of the B Corp certification, you have to be truly transparent on revenues, on profits, on show, on, on all that information that people just sometimes don't like talking about. Trying to raise two million quid, trying to fund two million quid from a crowdfund point of view, did that B Corp certification help because you were so transparent up front?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, we ended up raising that through venture capital. And okay. I think it was an important part of like people when they asked our, what we were about, people understanding our approach to business. But I think the the investment firm that eventually invested in the brand, I think, see it as a key KPI alongside yeah revenue and profit and actually um are so supportive of like the direction that we're taking the business and i think the key thing when you're thinking about it is not just people and planet at the cost of all profit like it has to be sustainable in every financially as well and i I love that tension and it forces you to make some really like difficult decisions but it it isn't at the cost of profit because we are a business we have to of course you you have to sustain yourself Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a really nice tension. and to be honest it's like more intellectually challenging <laughs> as well so I've and I enjoy that like I enjoy the like tension and decision making you have to make when you think about all those three things in tandem.
1: Do you think businesses when starting up should go straight down that B Corp certification route then or do you think they should become sufficient and experienced before they do that because it is expensive and time-consuming to, to do?
0: Yeah that's a great question I think the advice, I went and spoke to lots of different B Corps and I'm sure you did the same when you were thinking about doing it and I spoke to a great guy called Mark Cudigan from Ella's Kitchen and he runs Ella's Kitchen and his advice was, you know, you've got to be able to sustain yourself and have a business before you necessarily focus on, say, something like a B Corp, which is really intensive. So I, I think it's a good advice. It's like, you know, first couple of years, maybe focus on just making sure that you have sales and that you've got, you know, demand for your product. And then start to really start to think about how you kind of embed and cement Mm -hmm. some of the good ways that you want to kind of grow your business. But fundamentally, you can't, you need a business. And I know, and you'll know just how hard it is in those first few years, like, you know, really trying to get that brand off the ground is so integral. But having said that, I think there are some brilliant businesses that have impact and purpose that really built into just their dna you know there's brands like tony's choccoloni which are so intrinsically delivering upon their purpose by the very nature of what they do so um if you in an ideal world you create something that was was very in its in its essence was about solving that problem a problem in the world
1: and how do you innovate and kind of you know push the boundaries moving forwards because once you've created a nut butter you've kind of surely got a nut butter i know you guys do limited edition different flavors and, and to be fair they are incredible flavors now where can you and how can you push that boundary of peanut butter
0: yeah so i guess our first step out of um the category and in our range at the moment is our nut butter cups which are like a healthy take on the leading round. i won't mention no name. i won't mention them but i know what you mean um, yeah <laughs> but they're super tasty and they're like nut butter scented chocolate um in all our different in lots of different flavors and that I guess was our first step and I think for me it's about trying to create a, an, a nice thread that connects all of our products to our core products which are our nut butter so yeah I think that one was a really good example of like often what people ask and love about our brand is the permissible indulgence of our products <laughs> the fact that they taste amazing but they feel kind of good at the same time and nut butter cups were a bit more indulgent than permissible but they still deliver that kind of um, taste and, and excitement when you eat them and they're a really successful product range so really that's sort of how do you deliver that and I think I do a lot of like browsing supermarkets I think when you start a food and drink brand you end up just a supermarket is never the same again you're constantly going up and down those aisles um I love going into lovely delis and independent stores because they tend to have like more unusual products and we've pre-covid used to do a lot of kind of we went to like America for instance and we'd get inspiration over there to see what was happening over there because they are the home of nut butter peanut butter so um it kind of helps, kind of keep your broad, your your um, horizons open. But I think, I think that's always the hard bit, isn't it? When you're growing something, when you're in the throes of it, and you're in the day to day, sometimes you've then got to be creative. Sometimes, obviously, all all the time. But you know, sometimes you might get thrown into an innovation meeting and got to come up with an amazing idea. And I think you've got to try as much as you possibly can to step away from some of the day to day stuff because. You know, you need to kind of keep those creative juices like flowing and um, find inspiration around you. And you don't do that when you're sat looking at an Excel spreadsheet. So, <laughs> no, you're, yeah. right,
1: you're absolutely right. But in, and delegation is so difficult, though, specifically for, for those that, that that start a business up. And I know you've obviously got a board of experienced people around you now, but how, how do you delegate? How do you take that step away? Because actually, if, if, if you're not pushing forwards yourself – have you got a reliable team that will do that for you and innovate or do you still have to fundamentally communicate from the top down?
0: Yeah so we're we're, for context about 25 people now in the business so we're coming to the end of our sort of seventh year now and so it's it's still quite a small team so there's still elements of like doing and there are sometimes stuff that I have to do that I'm like oh this is so (laughs) I wish I didn't have to do this anymore Um, but yeah it's still quite quite small Um, and but I you know in the early days I think it was really just plugging the gaps of where you're weak and um, you know operationally didn't really have much experience in supply chain and likewise finance you know you, you know, fundamentally accountants exist because they're incredibly good at making sure that you spend the right amount of money and you keep on track so there's sort of a, the essential things which actually you're quite happy to drop away and I think then it's that um, I think the hard bits are when there are the things which you actually quite enjoy but you know you don't have time to do well you know social media as an example like actually love the creative aspect of that and enjoy sort of browsing and and speaking with people but you just know you don't have time anymore so i think it tends to be like limitations where you just either your experience or your time dictates whether or not you have to start dedicating things mm. but yeah i think it's incredibly difficult for founders and yes. business owners to let go and sometimes i don't always succeed in that and have <laughs> to get i get some nice feedback from people and get told to Step back,
1: step back, and stop what they call micromanage. Do you micromanage?
0: I hope not. No, um, it's the worst. I'm sure there are moments where I've had, I've had tendencies to do it, and you know, if you have, we one of the things we have at Pipnot is, um, or what we're trying to embed as much as possible is that feedback culture. Yes, that's something that I think is really powerful, and I think everyone sometimes can default when they're stressed into um, the bad habits that they yeah. have. So mine might be um, that I'm a bit particular and a bit picky and maybe yeah. a bit micromanagey. And you have to kind of be able to have feedback given back to you if you are falling into your kind of trap of the way you normally work. So 100%.
1: Yeah,
0: I hope not, but you have to ask my team. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Apologies in advance, I think. It's sort the caveat there. <laughs> in terms of, I suppose, over the last eight years or seven and a bit years that you've been, you've been running it, Pip, what's been the most important lesson that you wish when you started that you'd know?
0: I think for me, um, one of the most important lessons I've learned, probably more personal than anything else, is that probably just to enjoy it a little bit more. I think it's something which I can really quickly um, find when I'm busy or stressed is that, you know, you can forget to kind of step back and enjoy what you're doing and always want to go on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a really important skill and thing to learn is to be able to stop and, and enjoy it. And, you know, like... The early years are some of the most exciting and some of the hardest, but never forget like those are the bits that you're probably going to look back with like real rose-tinted glasses. So document it all, make sure you've got it all captured and try to take those moments um, when you can because... Um yeah, it's such a unique thing that you're 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 doing yeah. that it's a great thing to be able to look back on as well.
1: Do you ever wake up in the morning or even frankly go to bed at night and just go, actually, I'm bored now. I don't want to do this, or you are just so stressed that you just simply can't motivate yourself the next day to get out of bed and crack on. How do you deal with that?
0: Yeah, I definitely think you get lethargy or just tired. Mm-hmm. Um as much as anything else. Yeah. Um it's quite a full on thing running your own business. But I think it's the moment I have that I try and book a holiday instantly because <laughs> that's probably, probably why I'm feeling like that yeah. and I think then I think try and get away from whatever it is that you're having which is pulling on on you and I think I've got a coach now and actually that's kind of quite helpful because they help you kind of un- unpick what it is that mm-hmm. you, while you might be feeling frustrated. Is it because aspects of what you're doing is just not where your skill base lies mm-hmm. or is it because you don't have the right team around you? Um, is it about uh, just the fact that you have other things in your life that's impacting maybe your work? So I think it's, yeah, but I think everyone experiences that and I think it's a really normal feeling. And
1: obviously, looking back, obviously, you wanted to have more fun if you had, if you could do it again. You wanted to have more fun at the very beginning. You wanted to embrace that and actually live in the moment. In terms of entrepreneurs that are starting right now, what's the one thing that they should do from day one?
0: For me, it would probably be about try as never be protective of your idea um talk to people about it get people's feedback and also get it if it's a product it's not always of sometimes it's a service obviously like but if it's a product try where you can to make it as real and test it as as early as you possibly can i guess if you're in the tech world you'd be like your minimal minimum viable product yes. like what is the basic way to get it out and i think with that just accept that sometimes things won't be perfect and not quite how you want it to be because if you are just getting out and it's a bit scrappy I think one of the worst things you can do is compare yourself to a business that has been going for 10 years and expect yourself to be that kind of level of and I think it's I mean I even do it sometimes with our business that you know you compare yourself to a business that's been going for 20 years and it's not really a fair comparison you know so as much as anything else just remember that try not to compare and despair as well well. like test learn get it out in the world by doing you'll learn way more than just hypothetical kind of modeling Mm -hmm. and uh, in doing so then hopefully it becomes more real but don't compare yourself to businesses too much as well
1: and how do you make sure that you're still competitive if you're not specifically comparing yourself because obviously i do the same thing i compare ourselves to businesses and you go actually they're a little bit further ahead than us and it gets a bit annoying it gets a bit demoralizing and from a mental point of view you can get quite uh, depressed about that how do you shut off and go actually what we're doing right now is absolutely the right decision and absolutely the right thing to do for our business
0: yeah like i for instance don't follow any of our competitors on social media as one example so interesting.
1: i've unfollowed all of ours on mine it's so interesting yeah
0: i just i find it either clouds my what i think is the right thing to do because i then think i should follow a bit more or it it just yeah it drives the wrong behavior i think and for me like i'd like to be inspired by like other sectors or other industries um rather than just looking at what competitors are now don't get me wrong we look at we buy data and we look at what competitors are doing from a kind of numbers perspective all the time mm-hmm. but creatively i don't want to be led by what they're doing um and i find it really like it narrows me rather than like makes me inspired and, and things like that, so um, I think that's 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 quite important.
1: Look, Pip, I, I mean I love the product, it's genuinely inspiring what you've done, where you've come from, albeit literally a shed through to where you are now, it's <laughs> it's excellent. I know our office likes the product, most of the nation seems to like the product, but for those that haven't actually tried your product, where can they go to find it?
0: So they can get it from our web shop, so um or any major retailer.
1: Pip, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. Coming up next week. We set ourselves
0: apart because for me personally, I think the word benefits is old hat anyway. And perks makes me just want to like vomit. Like it's a horrible word. Like looking after my mental health is not a perk. Seeing a therapist shouldn't be seen as a perk. This is about genuinely impactful support that an employer can give to employees
1: See you next week, 8am on all podcast platforms. Simply subscribe or ask your smart speaker to play Success Is In The Mind podcast. This is a Pinpoint Media podcast presented by me, Oliver Bruce, produced by Dan Miller and Fergus Bruce, edited and designed by Harry Fox and Victoria Bramwell, filmed by Madeline Harris, marketed by Ellie Hanwell and Rachel Buchanan-Hughes and managed by Bethan Wyatt and Annabelle Norton-Smith. Quite a team. Thanks, guys. If you know anyone you think we should interview, if you want to tell your story or have your say, Please reach out to me directly via podcast at pinpoint-media.co.uk. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Cheers, guys.